Okay, talking about proof. John chapter 20, I'm going to begin reading with verse 19. And this is a little bit of a lengthy passage, so let's just go for it, okay? John 20, 19. Then the same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Shalom, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This is, this is kind of John's great commission here. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve. You know, it's interesting, Thomas's name, he's just called the twin. How would you just like to be known as the twin? And then even the term Didymus, at one point he's called Didymus, it means twin. He was not with them when Jesus came, so the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands in, unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them and Jesus came, the doors being shut. And obviously, I think John's emphasizing the doors being shut because Jesus evidently walked through the doors or through the walls. And he said, Shalom. Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Can the church say amen? amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word doesn't go out void. And God, I thank you for proof of the gospel. I thank you for proof that you are the son of God. I pray, God, right now that you would touch the minds and hearts of each person in this congregation this morning and Lord if there's any struggling with believing who you really are or who you really are to them I pray that argument is settled this morning and I pray they see who you really are this morning let your word go forth in power and we receive it in Jesus name and everybody can shout amen, amen. proof say it with me proof. proof we learned last week that we are the proof right we are the proof of the resurrection. We are the proof of who Jesus really is. He really is the Son of God. We saw it in the story of the centurion when he looked at Jesus after he died on the cross and he said, truly this was the Son of God. And now we come to the story of Thomas. And I don't know that I've ever preached on this story, but Thomas is one who is, we call him Doubting Thomas, but if you actually read the Bible, all of the disciples were basically doubting. They were all having their doubts. Even after Jesus appeared to them, some of them were not believing. It says in one point, he had to explain to them the scriptures. 
before they really understood what was going on. So it's a little bit unfair to call Thomas doubting Thomas because they all were doubters. Jesus walks in after his resurrection and rebukes them for their lack of faith. But his, his, his case is singled out, right? So we understand him as doubting Thomas. But I see three things in this passage that I want to bring out this morning and show how Thomas figured out the proof of who Jesus really was. First thing that we see is that Jesus is risen. He's risen from the dead. Last week, we had him dying on the cross. This week, he's coming in a resurrected form, resurrected body, and appearing to Thomas. What's strange about this resurrected body is that he still has the nail prints, he still has the pierced side, but yet he can walk through walls. He eats broiled fish with them on the lake shore, but yet ascends to heaven in Acts chapter 1 in this body. J. Rodman Williams said years ago, it's a mysterious body. It's a spiritual body. It's a resurrected body. That's what it was. It's a mysterious body a spiritual body, a resurrected body. I don't know. I believe in heaven we're going to recognize each other, don't you? I believe we're going to recognize each other in heaven. But I believe I'm going to be about 30 years old. Or Don't you think that? Surely we're not taking gray hair and wrinkles and all that to heaven. Hallelujah. But Jesus comes in and he gives this Hebrew greeting of shalom. Things are now as they should be. Peace to you. Now everything that I've told you has been accomplished. Even what you didn't understand in the time now has been accomplished. Now peace to you. Things are as they should be. The resurrection of Jesus is one of the most crucial building blocks of our faith. And in the realm of apologetics, it is one of, if not, the greatest evidence for Christianity. Paul said in Romans chapter 1, he said, I am a, an apostle separated to God, which he promised before through his holy prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. So he's saying Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection of the dead. We know that He always was the Son of God. From eternity past, He was the Son of God. He will be the Son of God to eternity future. He's always the Son of God. That's why I don't like the term manifested when we talk about Trinity. So God manifested in a, in a time and then manifestation has the connotation that it happens and disappears. It happens and it disappears. Jesus happened, sure, in the body of flesh for a moment, but He's always been the Son of God. He's always been the Son of God. 
But something happened on the cross as though He was always the Son of God on the cross and then when He arose from the dead, He proved Himself to be the Son of God. Right? Let's, let's just take the University of Kentucky for example. Let's say the University of Kentucky was ranked preseason number one in basketball, which has happened many times. And then let's say they play the whole season through, go to the tournament, do not lose to St. Peter's in the first round, but they go on and they make it to the final four, and then they win the championship game. He who was preseason number one has proven their number one on the court. We had a, a, my, my home high school is, is famous for wrestling. We won more state championships than anyone in any sport in the state of Virginia. Over 20, 20 plus state championships in my home high school in wrestling. They're, they're awesome. So one season, one of uh, my, my wife Jackie, one of her kinfolks was ranked preseason number one in the United States in his weight class. In high school. And he went out uh, to the Midwest somewhere and he wrestled the number two guy ranked in the U.S. high school in his weight class. And he beat him. So he who was ranked number one proved it on the mat. Jesus, who was always the Son of God, proved it by coming out of the grave on the third day. Come on, somebody lift your hand and say, thank God. We serve a risen Lord. Paul says, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is such a uh, profound passage. We read it at funerals a lot. I love to read it at grave sites because it's so profound. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read several verses out of here. Verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas or Peter, and by the twelve, then by the twelve. After that He was also seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. Come on over to verse 12. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is in vain. This is how important the gospel of the resurrection was to Paul. And as you look in the book of Acts, over and over and over, the apostles are getting in trouble for preaching resurrection. Be it the resurrection of Jesus or their belief in the future resurrection of all people. Both got them in hot water. If you remember back to the shipwreck series I did, Paul, one of, he said, the reason I'm in jail is because of the resurrection of the dead. 
I've been preaching this, and they're coming against me because of it. When he goes into the Areopagus in Athens, they come against him and can't understand the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. When he was before the Sanhedrin, he saw the split between the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he knew the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. The Pharisees did. So he said, the reason I'm here is because of the resurrection of the dead. And they started arguing against each other, and they blew up, and Paul kind of dipped out or was taken out. Resurrection is a major issue in the New Testament, one of the biggest building blocks of our faith. I want you to think about the following. Just turn your brains on here and, and flow with me. First of all, we have proof that the apostles saw him, Roman soldiers saw him, Mary Magdalene saw him at the empty tomb. And I don't think they went to the wrong tomb. I don't think that they stole his body away. I don't think the Roman soldiers were bribed into, or, or, were, or, or wouldn't take the bribe, and wouldn't lie about her, or bribed into lying about her, or whichever way it went. I don't think that's the case. They act, there was actual historical evidence. And then there's all of these post-resurrection appearances. And let me just say this. He was seen by over 500 at once, and then for a 40-day period, he's walking around and appearing in his resurrected form. And these appearances were varied in nature and were diverse in nature. Sometimes he appears to one person. Sometimes he appears to crowds of people. And it's really interesting from a historian's perspective how important that is. Also, there was a very short time frame between the resurrection appearances of Christ and the first writings about it or the first vocal or memorized creeds about it. We believe what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, scholars look at that and believe it's an ancient creed that predates Paul's letter, that it goes back to the first days of Christianity. And you can see these creeds throughout Paul's writings, that it goes back, it was so early that it was carried on by oral tradition. They knew that he had died for the sins of the world. They knew that he had resurrected on the third day. They knew that he had appeared in physical form. Paul even said, there are some of you here who have seen him. Could you imagine that? Some of the first church services ever were filled with people who actually saw Jesus in his resurrected form. Can somebody shout hallelujah? Hallelujah. So the, the, you know, one of the more famous New Testament scholars from England, James Dunn, says, this tradition of Jesus' resurrection and appearances, he says, we can be entirely confident of this tradition because it was formulated as a tradition within months of his death. And finally, there's another, I think, incredible proof of the resurrection, and that is the extraordinary transformation of the apostle. Because in John chapter 19, or chapter 20, where we began, in verse 19, it says, they were assembled in a room, doors locked, for fear of the Jews. John chapter 20, verse 19. In my Bible, you can just turn over a few pages and go to Acts chapter 2 and see them baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14 and he begins preaching 
with a fervor and a boldness and a daring that didn't seem to be there before. So in my Bible, John chapter 20 verse 19 is on page 1613. And Acts chapter 2 verse 14 is on 1627. So what happened in those 14 pages? What happened? What transformation happened in those 14 pages? I'll tell you what happened. They saw the resurrected Jesus. They touched the resurrected Lord. And not only that, they were filled with the promise He promised them, the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And after those two instances and after those two things happened, they were willing to give their lives, travel to the end of the globe, say what God wanted them to say, stick their finger right into the face of the Sanhedrin and authorities that had crucified the Lord and said, you're the ones guilty because you crucified the, the Lord of glory. Come on, somebody shout hallelujah. Come on, they were the proofs of the resurrection. Lift your hands with me and say, Jesus is risen. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Second thing in this text that I see is that Thomas gets the proof he needs. Thomas gets the proof he needs. First of all, Jesus appears to him and he says, you know what? Here, here are the nail prints. Now the Greek term here for, for this is, is really hands. It's not wrists. It's really hands in the Greek. I don't, but I don't know if that's... Some say that they were nailed through the wrist because the hand wouldn't support it. Others say they would tie their wrist to the cross and then pierce their hands just for extra suffering in this horrific way of dying. So I don't know. But anyhow, he shows his hands to Thomas and then he shows his side to Thomas, his feet to Thomas... But the Bible never says Thomas touched him. Why? I don't think he had to touch him. I think he's sitting there arguing with the disciples. There's no way he's risen from the dead. And Jesus walks through and he's like, okay, I'm done. This is all I need. I don't need to touch him. And he then falls at his feet and gives one of the greatest declarations of faith. When he says, Adonai, you are my Lord and my God. You're not just a man. You're not just a teaching prophet. You're not just a good moral person. You are a divine person. You are God in flesh. You're the one and only Lord. And not only are you Lord and God, you're my Lord and you're my God. Can somebody lift your hand and say, my Lord and my God. He had the proof. He needed. Thomas was bold. If you look in other parts of the Gospels, John chapter 11, verse 16, Jesus told them, said, Lazarus is dead. And he says, I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there so that you might believe. Nevertheless, let us go. And Jesus gathering his disciples and we're going to walk down to Lazarus's tomb. And Thomas steps up and says, let us also go that we may die with him. Okay, I don't know how to take that. Either he was bold or he was sarcastic. But either way, he speaks up. John chapter 14. Jesus says, I'm going to a place. In my Father's house are many mansions. And I, and I go to prepare a place for you. But where I'm going, you can't go also. John, I mean, Thomas speaks up in chapter 5 of verse four, chapter 14. And he says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? So evidently, I don't think there was much filter between what Thomas thought and what came out the mouth. 
But nonetheless, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. It's to Thomas that he said these things. My Lord and my God. So you know what? There's so much proof. I, I believe. I believe in Augustus Caesar. I believe there was a man named Augustus Caesar who was the head of the Roman Empire in the first century. I believe in Julius Caesar. I believe there was a man named Julius Caesar who some centuries before that was the leader of the Roman Empire. I believe in the triumvirate. I believe in, believe in Octavius and, and Pompey and all the, the, the triumvirate of, of leaders of Rome. I believe in uh, Plato and Aristotle and Socrates. I believe they lived because we have testimony to it and we have physical writings. I believe there was a man named Napoleon who was a leader of the French armies. We have historical record and te live testimonies and all that of it. But if you want to look at the Gospels, we have more evidence in the Gospels and in the New Testament that Jesus actually lived, died, and resurrected than in many, if not most, if not all other ancient texts. It's absolutely amazing to look at the textual evidence over 5,000 pieces, parts, or whole manuscripts of the New Testament only. The New Testament in the ancient world. It's why critical scholars work in this all the time and beautiful work they do and thank God for them researching and spending their lives combing through parts and pieces and, and words and family lineage of certain textual evidence. It's absolutely amazing of the evidence we have. But it's, it's funny that the world really doesn't see this like this, you know. But their minds have been blinded. There was a man named Lee Strobel. Many of y'all may know him or know the name. Lee Strobel was a, was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And he was uh, trained in law, I think. And he, he was married to a lady who started going to church and became a Christian. And he kind of got upset about it. So he said, it's fine. I'm going to use my uh, journalistic skills, my law, my legal training, and I'm going to go research the evidence and prove that there's nothing to it. So we began researching, found some of the greatest scholars on planet Earth and went and talked to them and went deeper and deeper. And as he went deeper and deeper into it, he realized that this stuff was true. And he accepted Christ and became a Christian... And we have one of his cousins playing drums for us, Brad Strobel. Seriously. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. Oh, hallelujah. So what about Thomas? Thomas sees the resurrected Lord. He's convinced. He makes a statement of, of faith. And then what happens to Thomas? Well, according to tradition, according to history, Thomas then goes through what would be uh, modern-day Syria, Edessa, and those locations, there was a gospel that's become popular called the Gospel of Thomas, which is really apocryphal, and it's not canon of Scripture, but we believe it came out of that region of the world. But anyhow, it says a lot of fantastic things I don't believe, but it is interesting, and I've had to study it, and it's interesting to study it. But nonetheless, we believe from there, he went on east. So, interesting tidbit, in the 1500s, one of the Portuguese explorers goes to, uh, goes to India, Vasco da Gama. And Vasco da Gama shows up on the Indian shores, southern India, and his men hop off, and they find Christians there. And they're blown away that there are Christians 
in India in like 1498. But when they started talking to them, they realized that they called themselves Thomas Christians. That they were there because Thomas made it there and started preaching the gospel and established churches in southern India. Ask any Indian today, and they'll, anyone I've talked to will, will testify to this, because those churches are there. I've even heard that when they arrived, they found that they worshipped like ancient synagogue worship. And the story and tradition goes that he was given money by a king to do something with it, and he takes the money and gives it to the poor. Later on, he's speared by a group of men, and then he is buried in India, and his tomb is still in India today. So like the centurion last week, Longinus, who went to Cappadocia and preached the gospel, now we have Thomas, who's gone as far as India and given his life for the gospel. Evidently, Thomas saw something in that room that day that was so powerful that it would cause him to go to the ends of the earth without any reservation and give his life for the gospel. Can somebody shout hallelujah? One more thing happens in the upper room that day. And this is actually before Thomas comes in the room, but I want to I highlight it. Jesus gathers with his disciples and he breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, he gathers them together, breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. And, and what was happening there? We've got some options. Number one, this was a prophetic symbol. Like often in the Old Testament, the prophets did symbolic things. So maybe this is prophetically a, a symbolic prophetic symbol. That he knows what's getting ready to happen in Acts chapter 2. He's telling the disciples to wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so as a sign, as a sign, excuse me, in, before that, he gathers them and then breathes on them because he knew what was coming. Another way of putting it is that he breathed on them and they actually did receive the Holy Spirit. That the Spirit came in kind of a salvific way. But the Spirit would come in a power and fullness in baptism. In Acts chapter 2. And a lot of Pentecostals like that version of it. I give you two options. But whatever happened, the Holy Spirit became another tangible evidence that the words of Jesus were true. The resurrection of Jesus was real. And everything that had happened was according to Scripture. So in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Ghost came, as of, like the sound, as of a rushing mighty wind. And then cloven tongues of fire sat upon each of those in that room. And then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began speaking with tongues and glorifying God. Then in Acts chapter 8, Philip goes down, preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. And then he calls down Peter and John. They had already been saved in revival, but he calls down Peter and John who lay hands upon the, the Samaritan believers and they receive the Holy Spirit with power. Acts chapter 10, Peter goes into the house of a, of, a, of a Gentile named Cornelius. And when he goes into his house, he's preaching the gospel of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. And while he's preaching that, the Holy Ghost descends upon those Gentiles. And they all begin prophesying, glorifying God and speaking in tongues. 
Acts chapter 19, Paul shows up and, and tells the, he shows up with the Ephesians and he asks them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They said, we haven't heard whether there is a Holy Ghost. He said, then how were you baptized? And he baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then he laid hands on them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They began speaking with tongues and glorifying God. All through the book of Acts, and the book of Acts hasn't ended. Hallelujah. You and I are in Acts chapter 29, I believe, this morning. And when I feel the power of God that I feel right now coursing through my spirit man, I know it's evidence that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the dead on the third day, that he died for the sins of mankind. Hallelujah. We still have the evidence with us today. We have the historical record, the testimony of the apostles, and we have the power and might of the Holy Ghost upon us. His glory, His manifested power, it's proof. Every time I come to church, I know God is real. He woke me up this morning and I knew he was real. Hallelujah. Honey, I'll go to bed tonight and I'll know he's real. Monday morning I'll wake up and I'll know he's real because the Holy Ghost is living in my heart. Come on, somebody give him a shout. Hallelujah. Woo! Somebody give him a praise. You feel the Spirit of the Lord? It's proof we serve a resurrected Jesus. We serve a God that's not dead. My God's still alive. Hallelujah. Come on, give him praise. Hallelujah. Come on, hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. You know, I woke up this morning and there were, I had, I had some worries on my mind. Just stuff, you know. I know that doesn't happen to you. Just talk about my life. But I just had just concerns about this, about the other, and, and I'm like, okay. I'm, I'm going around getting ready for the day. And then I grabbed my phone and I said, well, I'm going to turn on some worship music. And I found an old song by the Mississippi Mass Choir that Jackie and I used to listen to. And it goes, this morning when I rose, I didn't have no doubt. This morning when I rose, I didn't have no doubt. And I started listening to that. The Holy Ghost hit me and shook me like a... All through the house, man. I started shouting... And it's like God just said, Hans, I'm taking care of everything. I am a God who's alive. I'm not dead. I'm not stuck in a tomb or just in the dusty history books of time. But I am a God who's walking in with you right now through this house. <laughs> I'm a God who's living in your heart right now. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I'm not dead. I'm alive. We serve a real God, a living God. Hallelujah. There are a lot of seekers of truth out there people who are searching for God in different religions and different philosophies and my heart goes out to them because a lot of them are very earnest seekers of truth like my friend Mike Shree that's his whole take he said he was a yogi teaching uh, basically teaching a form of kundalini Hinduism and he said I was an earnest seeker of truth I wanted the truth of God 
And so I searched and searched and searched and searched. And Mike said, we used to fast. And we used to fast on garlic. He said, no one would come around. But nonetheless, and we would just spend days meditating on certain ascended masters. And this ascended master. And this ascended master. And this is. But he said, one week, we were commanded to meditate on the ascended master, Jesus. So Mike said, I was raised Catholic. So I grabbed a Bible and I began reading actually the red letters, the statements of Jesus. And as I read those, I became conflicted. And he said, I realized if what he's saying is true, then I have a problem here because the philosophy I'm following doesn't mesh with this philosophy. Because Jesus is making exclusive statements about himself. And so he said, I began praying. Jesus, if you're real, show me today. Jesus, if you're real, show me today. So he said, I went to teach a a yoga class and I went out on the streets and I started hitchhiking. This is the 70s and they're all hippies, so get it. I'm hitchhiking to class to teach at a university. And he said, at the same time, there's another man that, that we know and he was a young Christian. He was going to the laundromat to do laundry. He said he put his clothes up on the washer and the Lord spoke to him and said, go get in your van and start driving. So he went out, grabbed his clothes, got in the van and just started driving. He didn't know where. And as he's driving down the road, this young Christian passes this hippie yogi hitchhiking. He pulls over the van and Mike says, I'm there hitchhiking saying, Jesus, if you're real, show me today. And the man pulls over the van. Mike said, I hopped up in the van, sat down, and looked on the ceiling, and he had a picture of Jesus on the ceiling of the van. Mike said, I looked at him and said, are you a Christian? And the guy said, yes. He said, are you a Christian? Mike said, no, but can I become one today? He said he pulled over the van. They got in the back and knelt down. And they started praying. And Mike said, whoa, 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 whoa. Before you pray, I'll never believe the Bible is the literal Word of God. And the young Christian said, don't worry about it, man. You'll work all that out. (laughs) Let's just pray. That was a very smart move. Then he says to the guy, Mike said, hold on, hold on. I'll never believe in a literal hell. I just can't get that. I I don't believe that. He said, hey, man, don't worry about it. God will work all that out. He could have derailed his salvation. Right there. Uh, don't worry about it. God's going to work all that out. And they knelt down and he accepted Christ as his Savior. He said he went back to his class and he went to all the classes, I think seven universities he was teaching at, and told them, I'm closing down my school because I have accepted Jesus Christ as the true God. I'm telling you, how many can lift your hand and say, my God is real? He's visited you. He came and knocked on your heart. He came and grabbed you out of the world. He called you from afar off and brought you into his love. Hallelujah. I know me. He called me. I wasn't even a church going. He called me in. I've known people gotten saved at country music concerts and God call them out of the bars and convict their hearts while they're doing the worst of sins. Oh, hallelujah. Why? Because God isn't afraid to go anywhere he needs to go to get you and to show you his love and to show you that he is risen and to show you that he is real. That's the proof. That's the proof. 
The Holy Ghost is the proof. The conviction is the proof. The power and gifts are the proof that God is real. Come on, stand on your feet and give the Lord a praise in here this morning. Thank you so much for listening today, watching with us, opening your heart to the Word of God. It's my highest honor to preach the Word. Our church exists to reach people like you. That's why we exist, to be able to communicate the gospel to the entire world. God has given us such an amazing outreach here to be able to do it this way through the internet and stuff. It's just, it's just absolutely amazing. So I pray that God has touched you today, that God has ministered to you, and I want to pray for you right now. If you need to accept the Lord into your heart, give your life to Jesus, or if you need healing in your body or healing in your mind, I want to pray for you right now. Could you join with me? Come on, just make this declaration. Jesus, I believe you are my Lord and my Savior. I repent of all sin, and I commit my life to you right now in Jesus' name. Come on, if you need healing, stretch out your hand. Father, for those who need a healing touch, I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that you heal them body and mind and touch them right now. We rebuke the disease and sickness that it's afflicting their body, and I pray for a complete wholeness. Come over them in the name of Jesus, and we give you thanks for it, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Come on, give him praise right where you are. Thank God for everything he's done in your life. Tell somebody what the Lord has done for you. We love you guys, and it's a privilege to come to you.